0: You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Lumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Harold E. Bayes. Dr. Bayes is the medical director and president of the Louisville Metabolic and Atherosclerosis Research Center in Louisville, Kentucky, and he's served as an investigator in over 400 phase 1 through 4 clinical trials for the treatment of high cholesterol and other dyslipidemias. Today, we're going to be discussing the evolving treatments in lipid management, including the role of niacin, the status of laropaprint, a brief overview of fish oils and omega-3 fatty acid supplements, as well as the novel approaches being used in today's new lipid lowering therapies. Thank you very much, Dr. Bayes, for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much for
0: having me. So as you know, there's a lot of controversy about some of the more recent uh, combination therapy trials when adding agents on top of statins. Including AIM-HIGH, uh, and some people have taken the aim data to mean that we should not use niacin in clinical practice, which I know is probably not either one of our positions. But I'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, where you think the role of niacin is in dyslipidemia based on the AIM-HIGH data.
1: Uh, yes, I think that's a, uh, I think that's a very good point. Um, uh, I think a message that seems to get lost sometimes is uh, you know some of the older data suggests that it you know at least as monotherapy. Uh, and in combination with some of the older agents, uh, niacin did uh, seem to have uh, benefits uh, with regard to reducing cardiovascular events. Uh, so I think that's important to keep in mind. Having said that, it's certainly true that the AIM-HIGH study suggested that if you have, uh, you know, really well-controlled uh, LDL cholesterol levels, with LDL cholesterol, you know, around 70 milligrams per deciliter or less, and you and you were able to achieve that with statin therapy. If you added niacin, you know that, that extra niacin, you know, may have not afforded any additional benefits, even though the triglycerides were reduced or the HDL cholesterol was raised. Now, you know, a lot of people bring up uh, you know potential issues they have with the study design and such. But the good news is, we have an upcoming study, the HPS2THRIVE study, which is a much much larger trial. In this case, looking at niacin with the flush blocker known as prant. And comparing that compared to you know that along with not uh, along with statins compared to statins alone, so I think we should have a, a more definitive answer, you know, hopefully by uh, by or before uh, the mid part of next year.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting because not only did people have LDLs in their seventies and aim high, but ninety four percent or so also had triglycerides that were relatively low, and so they were not only at their LDL goal, but they were at their non HDL goal. So at least what I took away from that trial, is trying to raise isolated low HDL in a patient whose LDL and non-HDL are at target does not appear to bear much fruit. But there were so few people with triglycerides over 200 that uh, theoretically we would generally be thinking of as uh, having residual high non-HDL. You really couldn't say much about that subgroup. And what I don't know, and you might have some insight on this, is whether or not uh, the uh, HPS2 Thrive baseline triglycerides are relatively high, or are we going to suffer from that same issue that we're looking at patients that are at both their LDL and non-HDL target?
1: Right. You know, I think think you're putting your finger right on the issue that we have, not just with, you know, the whole denies and development program, but frankly, with all of our outcomes uh, trials that we do. And that is, you know, once you achieve these very aggressive, you know, treatment targets and such, you know, to then... Uh, require that there be this additional benefit with an additional drug uh, is challenging no matter what the drug is. And unfortunately, you know, that's not really what we see in clinical practice. In clinical practice, we see a lot of patients who are not able to achieve these very aggressive lipid treatment targets. So, to me anyway, as a person that does these trials all the time, I, you know, I find it just interesting and somewhat disappointing that we're not able to, you know, put people in that more reflect
0: what we see in clinical practice. Sure. Makes a lot of sense. So on that note, we recently had another meta-analysis on omega-3 fatty acids. And, you know, depending on which side of the issue you lie, there have been criticisms and praise. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think about this recent meta-analysis of the clinical trials for omega-3s that suggested that at least supplementation in the form of pills didn't seem to translate into a reduction in cardiovascular events.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a, a uh, unfortunately, I think that's how it was characterized by the media, but that's not how one should interpret a meta-analysis. You know, a, a meta-analysis is 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 simply a you know a collection of relevant studies, and whoever is doing the meta-analysis, can, a meta-analysis can determine exactly what criteria is used in order to incorporate specific studies into the meta-analysis, and then uh, a specific p value has to be assigned to determine if that's clinically significant or not. And simply because something didn't didn't achieve a specific p value that was set by the by the people doing the meta analysis doesn't mean that the therapies were not effective. It just simply means it didn't achieve a level of significance that the authors put and in this case, the authors put a p value of 0.006, which was a bit unusual. Okay? So a bit unusual. So I would just caution clinicians and patients You know, when you have studies that had been conducted for years, you know, well-controlled and had, you know, undergone, uh, you know, a priori evaluations for statistical analysis and a dedicated clinical trial, uh, and again, trials that have over years, I think it is probably not wise to say, well, we did a, you know, looked at a meta-analysis, which, you know, once you have all the data and you have the software, it doesn't take very long to do, and we have somehow concluded that the meta-analysis supersedes the results of all these other clinical trials. So, so, again, my point is p-values are just are measures of probability, measures of statistics, and they should not be used, in my judgment, to say yes or no. It's just a measure of probability.
0: So I understand on that note that there's a new uh, omega-3 fatty acid on the market. Maybe that will help drive some of the prices down on the current prescription brands. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And also a little bit about how is it different from what we already have?
1: Yeah, and I think that fits into exactly what you're talking about. Uh, You know, there's this uh, AMR-101, you know, its trade names Vesepa, but it's AMR-101. It's an EPA-only drug. So as you know, the current prescription omega-3 fatty acid uh, contains EPA and DHA. But this only has EPA. And what's really interesting is that if you look at patients with high triglycerides administered, the AMR-101, the triglycerides go down, as you would expect, uh, but the uh, but the LDL cholesterol does not go up and as you know, particularly in patients with very high triglycerides when you administer fish oils, EPA and DHA, sometimes that LDL cholesterol can 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 really go up. Uh, in addition, there was a reduction in uh, APOB with APO being you know one molecule in every atherogenic lipoprotein and that's a finding that's very inconsistent with EPA and DHA. So the point is there does appear to be differences when you use EPA alone versus EPA and DHA, But the really exciting thing is uh, that the AMR 101 development program includes a, an outcomes study, okay, looking specifically in patients who have high triglyceride levels. And what's really striking is that all these decades that we've used fibrates and fish oils and these things to lower triglyceride levels and these drugs are used and approved uh, to treat high triglyceride levels. We have never done a dedicated, prospective clinical trial looking at a lipid-altering drug's effectiveness in hypertriglyceridemic patients. And I think it's well past time that we did. And I'm just, you know, very, uh, uh, very encouraged that we now are going to have, you know, kind of that definitive study in hypertriglyceridemic patients again with the administration of this EPA-only uh, agent.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and I'm speaking with Dr. Harold Bayes regarding the evolving treatments for lipid management. So uh, continuing on in that vein, Harold, I, I have often thought that uh, we might have had different results with CETP inhibitors if we looked at patients with high triglycerides who are using their CETP as opposed to patients who have more normal triglycerides who probably aren't using that pathway very vigorously and certainly we talked a little bit about that with uh, niacin, and even in the phenofibrate and other fibrate trials, those seem to be the patients that gave us a better outcome. So with that said, that's a good segue into uh, cholesterol ester transfer protein inhibitors or CETP inhibitors. Where do we stand with the CETP inhibitors in 2012, and what can you tell us about current trials that are underway?
1: I think uh, it would be um, an accurate characterization that the that the pursuit of CETP inhibition uh, towards reducing atherosclerotic event has thus far been challenging. Uh, The initial one that was uh, uh, most aggressively evaluated was Tercetrapin, and uh, and it had dramatic improvements in HDL cholesterol and substantial reductions in LDL cholesterol. The HDL cholesterol went, went up by over 100%, and the LDL cholesterol went down, depending upon the trial, about 30%, so everybody was very excited, unfortunately if you added the torcetropib to to a statin in this case atorvastatin uh then your risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease was actually greater than if you had just taken a atorvastatin alone so that was very disappointing and then we followed that up with dalcetrapib which you know inhibited uh, CETP a little bit less and they and the thinking was well, you know maybe we shouldn't be um, you know inhibiting CETP quite as much um, unfortunately that that agent was discontinued from development earlier this year due to lack of efficacy or what they call futility. So the thinking now is is that the torcetropib, the reason that it may have had adverse uh, effects on cardiovascular disease is that that it might be molecule-specific, that it might have uh, effects upon the adrenal gland and mineral corticoids and increase in blood pressure. And if you could just find something like torusetropib but that didn't have these off-target effects, you know, everything would be all good. And uh, so now we're evaluating the anacetropib, which seems to have, you know, very favorable effects on HDL cholesterol yet again, and the reductions in LDL cholesterol yet again, except there is no evidence thus far that it has these, uh, you know, minocorticoid adrenal increase in blood pressure effects. And so now we're in the midst of this uh, REVEAL trial, which is an outcomes trial that, you know, hopefully going to give us a definitive answer if anacetropib is, you know, it's going to be the C E T P inhibitor uh, that's going to move forward.
0: Great. So let's talk about some of the other exciting new agents, which uh, as long as it stays nebulous about using HDL as a target, we'll just have to wait and see. I, I mean, even some of the genetic studies are suggestive that, you know, uh, raising HDL may not be the best target, and, and we're all... I always say HDL is a lot like psychiatry. Half of what we know is correct, and nobody knows which half it is. So we just have to wait and see what what shows up. But let's get back to what we do know, which is LDL lowering seems to work in all patient subgroups. And I know there are some new lipid altering agents, uh, antisense agents, and also some uh, monoclonal antibodies. Can you tell us a little bit about those agents and in, uh, in studies now?
1: Sure. Uh, the uh, first one, as you mentioned, is the uh, the, you know, the anti drug, the uh, mipomersen, and there. Uh, what it, uh, what mipomersin does, it's antisense uh, towards uh, the development of the ApoB, okay, so it, it specifically targets a protein. The advantage there is that uh, you are surgically, you know, attacking uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, apolipoprotein that uh, is found on atherogenic uh, particles. So So the hope is that you would avoid, you know, collateral, what they call collateral effects that you often find... Uh, in less specific type therapies, so that's a very interesting approach—the antisense approach. You know, very interesting. Now, of course, it may have its uh, you know potential downsides, which would be injection site reactions because it's given as an injection, and increase in liver enzymes, and those things are all being evaluated in clinical trials. But then we have the um, we also have a, a a new class of agents that we're doing uh, you know many many trials—the uh, PCSK9 inhibitors. And what uh, PCSK9 is a, is a moiety that uh, helps in the degradation of the, um, of the LDL uh, receptor, okay? So what's really exciting, at least to me, what's really exciting about this, about the monoclonal antibodies uh, to the PCSK9 uh, is that uh, by uh, inhibiting the degradation of the LDL receptor, you would have enhanced LDL receptor activity. And I think you alluded to this correctly earlier on when you said, you know, here's something, a mechanism for which we are familiar. I mean, many of your listeners probably know the, you know, the very older, oldest drugs that we evaluated were the bile acid sequestrants. And one of their m- major mechanisms of action in lowering LDL cholesterol is that they increase LDL receptor activity. Isetamide is a cholesterol absorption inhibitor. One of its main mechanisms of action is that it increases LDL receptor activity. And then we have statins, the most commonly used lipid-altering drug, and its main mechanism of action towards reducing LDL cholesterol levels is the fact that it increases LDL receptor activity. So the PCSK9 inhibitors, the monoclonal antibodies, the PCSK9, is kind of attacking, you know, this, uh, you know, this very sa- uh, same sort of mechanism of action. And I think for investigators such as myself, you know, we feel very comfortable with that with that particular mechanism
0: of action. So we've talked about the antisense technology with mipomersin, which is basically a, a drug that interrupts the translation of messenger RNA for the protein APOB. And then we've talked about um, antibodies directly towards this moiety as you described it, the PCSK9 that binds with the LDL receptor and facilitates its degradation. So by by using an antibody to attack that, you, the LDL receptors hang around longer and have more expression on the surface of the cell. Both fascinating. And now you, there are some other agents that work with uh, slightly different mechanisms that are also quite exciting, right, such as uh, lomitapide. So can you tell us a little bit about that, agent?
1: Sure. Uh, lomitapide. Uh, people may not realize this, uh, uh, but it's, it, these types of drugs have been around for a while, and I would say decades. And what lipoprotein is? It's a, it's what we call microsomal triglyceride transfer protein, and and MTP uh, uh, packages those triglycerides into your uh, into your uh, lipoprotein particles, like the very low density lipoprotein (VLDL) particles. Okay, so if you block that, then you don't have the secretion of these VLDL particles, and then, and then thus. From a downstream effect, you don't have the creation of the LDL particles because they come from the LDL particles. What's very interesting about this development program is that a decade or so ago we were doing these studies, but we were using doses that we thought would rival that of the, or we we were using doses we thought would rival the lipid effects of statins. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, not only does MTP inhibitors inhibit the uh, triglyceride Uh, secretion from the liver, but it also impairs that triglyceride um, uh, uh, uptake from the intestine. So you can imagine what happens is if you're not able to, you know, absorb fats in the intestine, that can be quite, you know, problematic. And then you have a fat buildup in the liver, and that's a problem. But then they said, and this was after the advent and development of azetamide, they said, wonder if we used lower doses, maybe more tolerated doses, perhaps we could get clinically meaningful improvements in lipid levels, but we won't have as much of these adverse experiences. And I think that's the model for this drug development where, you know, you're getting LDL cholesterol lowering, uh, you're getting some triglyceride lowering, but you're not having nearly as many of the adverse experiences that I previously
0: described. So, unfortunately, we're out of time. I've really enjoyed this interview, and uh, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Harold Bayes, for all your insights on the newer agents and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview today. Well, thank you very much. And I'm Dr. Alan Brown. You've been listening to Lipid Lumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association at ReachMD. Please be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you very much for listening.